G'day everyone. Hi everyone at home. Uh, my name's Paul Owens, pastor for Church at 11, and uh, alongside with Greg, one of the staff team, and Sue Ellen, with Greg and Sue Ellen, and Karen. Sorry, we're all here today. Nearly all here. Um, part of the staff team at OEC. We're going to dive into Esther 3. Before we do that, let's, let's ask our great God for help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who speaks. We pray that you would help us to understand your word. Please apply it to our hearts. Soften our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we'd grow in trust and serve you with every part of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to ask a bit of a question. One of my recurring dreams when I was a kid, it popped up occasionally, was that I would turn up to school dressed in my pyjamas. Hands up if you had that dream. Okay. So let me just be clear. At 9 o'clock, there was an almost complete denial of this. We've got half a dozen hands here. Church at 11, I think, were reasonably honest. There was probably 10%. From what I hear, there should be about 50% of us who've got this dream. So perhaps we need to all take a long, hard look at ourselves. Uh, the dream is that I turned up, I turn up completely inappropriately dressed and, I, and am caught out as someone who is, um, I guess, who is totally separate to the group. So for those of you who've had that dream, you know that fear. You are the total outsider and the outcast. And I think that taps into what's deep inside all of us. None of us want to be the odd one out. None of us want to be singled out as being different to everyone else. If you're a Christian here this afternoon, I want to tell you, you are different to the world. That's the nature of putting your faith in Jesus. You mark yourselves as very different to the world around us. And Christians are the odd ones out in a world. Alongside of that, if you have identified yourself with Christ... There is someone today, multiple people in our world today, who would like to kill you. It sounds a little bit extreme, doesn't it? But it's true that if you are a Christian, if you've sided with Jesus, it means that there are many people in our world today who would like to kill you simply because you are a Christian, because you are numbered amongst the people of God. It was true two and a half thousand years ago and it's still true today and it'll be true until Jesus returns that the people of God have very strong opposition. So let's start with two and a half thousand years ago in the story of Esther. Have a look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. Haman gets the right-hand man position to the whole empire, right-hand man to the king, and is honoured. If you remember back last week, we ended chapter 2 by noting that Mordecai had provided information on an assassination plot to the king. He'd saved the, the king's life as a result of the information he'd provided. And yet we start chapter 3, and remember there are no chapter and verse divisions in the original story we start chapter 3 with this surprising news that Haman is honoured above everyone else in the empire when we know that Mordecai ought to be the one who is honoured. Now there's a lesson to be learned here for all of us today who desire to be a brutal dictator. I don't want you to put your hand up if that's you. 
But if you want to be a brutal dictator, then you, you need to make sure that you honour those who tell you about attempts on your own life. Because if you are a brutal dictator, they're going to come thick and fast throughout your rule. And you need to make a big point of uh, honouring those who tell you so that your life is saved in order that in the future your life will be saved as well. Somehow, randomly, in our story today, that hasn't happened. And Mordecai hasn't been honoured for this good work of saving the life of the king. That's going to be important in the weeks to come, so we just need to note that. We'll come back to that in coming weeks. Let's move on into verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Mordecai refuses to bow the knee to Haman, this greatly honoured man, second in charge of the empire. Why? Well, the story goes on and it tells us. Verse 3 and 4. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Why has Mordecai refused to bow the knee to Haman? It's because he's a Jew. And we read earlier that Haman is an Agagite. And we've heard of Mordecai's more direct background in chapter 2. He's a descendant of Kish, which makes him a descendant of King Saul. And so we have these two men with their family history that uh, drags us back to King Agag and King Saul. And so it drags, it drags us back to the Amalekites and the Israelites, the people of God. If you're taking notes, here's the history. that It pops up in Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25 and 1 Samuel 15. And it's a long history of enmity between the Amalekites and the people of God. Let me just tell you some of that history when Israel was saved out of being slaves in Egypt and God was taking them to the promised land, as they wandered through the desert, the Amalekites came out to greet them and to roll out the red carpet to them in the middle of the desert. Actually, if you know the story, that's not quite what happened. The Amalekites come out to attack the Israelites, to attempt to kill them in the desert. And because of that attack, God says to his people, to the Israelites, they are to destroy and totally wipe out the Amalekites for this brutal attack that occurred in the desert. Now, King Agag pops up and again King Saul is told by God through the prophet that he is to destroy all of the Amalekites. Uh, he, he doesn't actually king, king Agag, he hangs on to him. Uh, Samuel will end up killing him in 1 Samuel 15. But what it tells us is there is centuries-old bad blood between these people and the people of God. The Agagites, the Amalekites, are age-old enemies of the people of God and there is a long-term hatred between the two groups. They fight like cats and dogs, and that's Haman and Mordecai. Except that Haman doesn't want to just take on Mordecai. He wants to destroy all of the Jews. Have a look at verse 6. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. 
That's the reality two and a half thousand years ago for the people of God. They are under threat of death from the world. That's the reality for the people of God today. Now, no doubt in Esther it is more severe than it is for you and I. That's why Esther is in the Scriptures. Because there is this hugely astounding account of a threat on the life of every follower of God in the book of Esther. That's why we've got it. But that threat remains throughout all of history. The persecution of God's people is always there. And it's what Jesus told us would be the case. In John 15, he said, Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Friends, it's situation normal, if you are a Christian, to be hated by the world. Back in 2017, there was some footage of some Muslim terrorists who had captured Christians, 21 Christians. And on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, they beheaded those 21 Christians. Why? Because they're Christians. In the same year, there was a bombing attack on an Egyptian church. 44 people died. Why? Because they're Christians. In the entirety of that year, more than 120 Christians died in Egypt in separate attacks, all simply because they followed Jesus. It is par for the course that the world is going to hate Christians and some of them are going to want to kill Christians. A bit over 20 years ago now, I'd started in a new workplace, been transferred in the fire brigade to a different station, tried to make the attempt to let everyone know know I was a Christian just in general conversation by bringing up the fact that I'd been at church, you know, in different ways, talked to different people about uh, in Bible study, and so people generally in the station knew that I was a Christian, apart from one bloke. Me and him ended up in the mill room together on one particular time, and the conversation turned to politics And he started into what became a five-minute tirade on why Christians were the problem with the world. That the best thing we could do would be to remove Christians out of any political leadership situation. And his opinion was that if we could do that, the world would be a far better place because Christians were not good people. In fact, worse than that, he was saying Christians were evil in pushing their views on the world. Apart from trying to shrink into a hole that wasn't there... I've got a really clear picture of the hatred this guy had for the people of God. And that's the history that goes with all of humanity, that people will be strongly opposed to the people of God. That's Haman in the book of Esther. He is enraged in verse 5 at the Jews. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, firstly, I want to say it's fantastic to have you here. We love the fact that you're here and we want you to keep coming. But if right now you are thinking to yourself, I'm just waiting for the right moment to up and leave and get the door and get out of here because if this is what it means to be siding with Jesus, then I want out. Firstly, I understand that. But secondly, I want to tell you that the Bible is always very clear on counting the cost of what it means to side with Jesus. And it encourages people to think that through But in the end, it does the maths and it says it is completely worth it. Have a look with me. Romans 8. This is the Apostle Paul who knew what it was to suffer for being a Christian. 
He says, Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Yes, it's going to be hard to stand up with Jesus and it's going to involve persecution and suffering because of it. In the life of the Apostle Paul, there was plenty of that. Imprisonings, floggings, plenty of suffering that went along with being a Christian. But he says it does not compare with the glory that comes when all of God's promises are delivered to the people of God. Do the maths. Think it through very carefully. And if you do, it will always be worth it to be on the side of Jesus. As we do that, we ought to recognise that we want to be included and liked. That's what we're like, isn't it? Worst case scenario, you turn up to school in your pyjamas and you are not liked, you are not included, you're an outsider. Fundamentally, we want to be safe and secure amongst the people that would look after us and care for us. And we don't want persecution. We don't want suffering. We don't want ugly comments in the mill room at work. But friends, the truth is, if we walk away from Jesus, we won't be safe and secure at all. There is an eternal security that comes with trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we are included and loved in the most significant and important relationship there is. We are loved by the God who made us. Jesus tells us exactly where our fear should be. Alongside of counting the cost, we ought to know this as well. Luke 12 verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. We fear the world around us, don't we? We want to be in with the people around us to be loved and accepted. Jesus' words of advice are, make sure that we measure up correctly. Make sure that we fear God more than we fear man. Being right with God through trusting in Jesus results in great blessing. The encouragement in the scriptures is always to make sure we count the cost and recognise the blessing that it is to be found in Jesus. It is absolutely worth it. Now let's look at the nature of the allegations that Haman makes to the king. He puts to the king a whole lot of issues with the Jews in verse 8 to 9. So let's just have a look through this. Let me read verse 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Just firstly, it shows you the shape of Haman's hatred for the people of God. I did some looking into the, uh, to the pr- current price on silver, which is nowhere near the price of gold, but 10,000 talents of silver in Aussie dollars today translates to $360 million. He really wants to kill the Jews, doesn't he? It's about half of the annual tax revenue of the entire Persian Empire. He's a man who has enormous power and enormous wealth and he is using all of it to try and destroy God's people. This is a massive threat. 
to the people of God and to the promises of God. Now let's look at what it is that he actually alleges. Firstly, he says these people that he doesn't even name, who are the Jews, these people who are nameless, he says they keep themselves separate. Well, that's probably true because they're commanded to keep themselves separate as the people of God. Their customs are different and no doubt that would have been the case. They do not obey the king's laws. Well, there's a question mark over that. The only thing we've got evidence of is that uh, Haman, there was a command that people were to bow the knee to Haman and yet Mordecai refused to bow the knee. But that's the only law that these people look like they may not have been keeping. In fact, they're commanded to seek the good of the city that they were exiled to, so they ought to have been keeping most, if not all, of the king's laws. And lastly, he says it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Not in the king's best interest. And yet the queen is a Jew and he's very pleased with her and he tolerates her very well. And Mordecai is the man who's saved his life. It's been to his credit to tolerate Mordecai. And so there's some allegations that really don't hold water. Friends, what it means is when the world is going to make allegations against Christians, don't expect them to fight fair. They're not going to live by the rules of righteousness and justice when allegations are made against you and me about our behaviour. There won't be truthfulness and fairness in all of those dealings. And Haman shows us that. And behind the reality of this human opposition is a spiritual reality that the devil himself is at work opposed to the people of God. Have a look with me at 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 gives us a warning, verse 8 and 9. He says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, Peter understands that this is going to be the common experience of Christians. All across the world there will be sufferings because people are Christians and the reality is it's the devil himself who seeks to destroy those Christians, to destroy the church. What are we to do in response? Be alert and sober-minded. Know the reality of it. Persecution is coming simply for the fact that you are a Christian. So praise God for peace right now if you live without it without persecution and pray for the persecuted church like the church in Egypt where Christians are losing their life simply for being Christians. Pray for the family of believers throughout the world who are undergoing more severe sufferings than you and I. As you look at this account, Haman, the enemy of God's people, has all the power of the the world at his fingertips. It's incredibly threatening. Have a look with me at verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. In case you missed it, this man is the enemy of God's people. That's what the author wants you to know time and time again. And Haman now has the power of the king himself. He has the signet ring. He can seal whatever decree he wants to make. And we know what his intent is. If this was a movie, this is where the music would become very dark and the mood would be very dark because 
the cards have been stacked in favour of the enemy of God's people who we know desperately wants to destroy them. And we know this is real life. This is an actual historical account. And this man now who wants to destroy, kill and annihilate the Jews has the ability to do just that. Do you ever feel to yourself like the whole world is stacked against you? You feel like there's a weight of the world on your shoulders, that things are not going your way, that difficulties are loading up and it's just impossible to deal with life? At this point in the story of Esther, that is absolutely true. The whole world is bent on the destruction of the Jews. Keep going with me in verse 13 and 14 because we see just how bad, just how dire the situation is. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. See what's happening? It's not just Haman who is against the people of God. It is anyone who has a gripe against any Jew anywhere in the kingdom is encouraged that if you kill them, not only will that be a good thing, but you will get all of what they own. There will be a reward to plunder their goods, take their cars out of their garages, their flat screen tellies, everything you can grab their hands on, put them to the sword and benefit from it. This is absolutely dire straits for the people of God. Funnily enough, as the story unfolds, Haman rolls a dice. He casts the lot, or the purr, to determine the right day to annihilate the Jews. Why does he bother to do that? He's got all the power he needs to be able to do it. Well, it's pretty clear that Haman knows that there are forces at work, unseen forces at work, in the world. Now, for Haman, he almost certainly thinks that's the gods of the empire who are at work that he needs to check with just to make sure he's got the right day for this state-sponsored genocide. As he does that, it's massively ironic, massively ironic that Haman is going to seek the guidance of the spiritual world for this genocide. There are hidden forces at work in the world In fact, it's not quite right. There is a hidden force. There is one God who rules over the world with an all-encompassing power who is going to determine how these events play out. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So Haman rolls the dice... But it's the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Jews, that determines how that lands because there's no such thing as random in God's world. God works for the good of those who love him in all things and in the casting of the lot, in the rolling of the dice, Haman is doing exactly God's bidding. Governments come and go, viruses come and go, all in the control of our sovereign God. Friends, 2020 has been quite a year of chaos and disorder. But all of it, every single event, 
is in the control of the God of our universe, the God of the scriptures. So take heart. God is at work in the casting of this lot. He's at work in every human event. As it turns out, the casting of the lot meant that the day of the destruction of the Jews was set for the end of the year. We're at the start of the year, so there's plenty of time for things to unfold in a way that might save the people of God. This random rolling of the dice means things can pan out in a way that will be helpful in saving the people of God. Now, how do we read our Old Testament? That's a question as we, as we seek to unpack these historical passages that tell us stories of what's happened with the people of God. How ought we to read them? How do we understand them? So firstly, we need to read them in the context and understand the whole book that we're reading and how the events actually unfold there. So we need to do a bit of work to figure out Esther and then how Esther 3 unfolds in this story. But also we need to put Esther in the whole Bible and figure out how the story of Esther unfolds in the whole story of how God deals with humanity and his world from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. And then understand that the main event, the big picture event of the scriptures is the event of Jesus' death and resurrection and understand how that helps us to see the truth in Esther. So now as we look at Esther, I want to give you a spoiler alert. I was encouraging you last week to read all of it if you could in the week that's just gone. If you've done that, the spoiler alert is not needed, but for everyone else, I'm going to let, let the story um, unfold right now. God is going to deal with this threat to his people. They're going to live. They're always going to live because God delivers on his promises. Uh, God saves. That's what he does continually throughout history because he's keeping a people for himself. He saves his people out of slavery in Egypt He parts the waters so he saves them from the coming army of Pharaoh. He saves the Jews so they are not destroyed, killed and annihilated. Sorry to let the cat out of the bag, but that's the truth. They're alive and they are a people because they're able to receive God's good promises. When we get to the end of the Old Testament, there is still threats to the people of God. There are still threats from people groups who seek to to destroy them But there is still the big threat that comes throughout all of Old Testament scripture, which is the threat that the people turn away from their God to serve other gods. The people at their heart are sinful rebels before a righteous and holy God. And the threat is that they may never be able to experience the promises of God because of their sinfulness and their rebellion. How are they to live with this God? It's like you have a magnet and you try and bring two parts, two opposite magnets together and they simply can't be brought together. The people of God in their sinfulness and rebellion can't be brought into the presence of a holy and perfect God. The problem for the people of God, the threat to the people of God, is not just that they'll be annihilated from opposition, but their own sin will mean they'll be destroyed by a holy and righteous God. How is God going to save his people from that issue as scripture unfolds? And as we see Esther placed in the whole biblical storyline, we see that God saves and he always saves his people. And from this threat, he has sent the Lord Jesus to suffer and die 
so that the right judgment that should have landed on me for my sin and you for your sin has now landed on Jesus at the cross instead. And the God who saves has saved from a far greater threat, from a far greater threat than a people who are opposed and bent on the destruction of the people of God. God has saved from the threat of our own sin destroying us so that he would be the God who saves and he alone. Friends, as we read Esther and unpack it in the scheme of everything God has revealed to us, it points us forward from this mighty saving act to God's greatest mighty saving act that he saved his people for all eternity in order that that he would deliver on his promises. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your saving work in Esther, for the fact that you did hold on to a people for yourself, that they weren't destroyed by their enemies, that you did deliver on your promises. But Lord God, we save you, that you, we praise you that you've sent the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who saves. Help us to know that truth and to live in response to it all of our days in growing repentance and faith. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.